They, they say so much, but they never tell you if it's any good. Are either one of these any good? Sir? What? Are either one of these any good? I don't watch movies. Well, have you heard anything about either one of them? I find it's best to stay out of other people's affairs. You mean you haven't heard anybody say anything about either one of these? Nope. Well, what about these two? Oh, they suck. Hello and welcome to another episode of Projecting Film, the podcast where movies meet. And once again, we have an interview with a writer and director. I hope this becomes the norm here. It's always cool to speak to the uh, the horse's mouth, I guess, as opposed to, uh, well, us two jackasses, myself, Michael Denston, and my co-host Chris Maynard. But today you're going to get to hear from Morgan Dameron with her feature debut, writer and director of Different Flowers. look at you two and I think how great it must be to have someone that just gets you. Sisters are special. You have someone to be different with. Well, I I really enjoyed the film uh, quite a bit and I was pleasantly surprised with um, kind of the directions it took. But the first thing I wanted to talk about with the movie was the casting for it because sure. your, your two leads here, I think, I mean, clearly if you didn't have the right women in this role, the movie just would completely fall apart. Yeah. And um, can you talk a little bit about the casting process? Cause I think you did a great job with finding these two young women. Oh, thank you so much. Well, and thank you for your kind words. That really means a lot. Um, yes. Yeah, so with casting, Emma and Millie, obviously, anytime you're casting sisters, it's a real challenge. Um, And our casting director is incredible, Jessica Sherman. She really uh, sort of put her heart and soul into this process. And initially we thought, you know, maybe we just cast only real sisters. Maybe that's the only option. And we reached out to a couple real sisters. And we quickly realized, you know, all you have to do is sort of create an environment uh, for these actors to feel comfortable and to bond and to sort of grow a chemistry with each other. Uh, and so that's what we set out to do. Uh, and we found uh, the amazing uh, Emma Bell and Hope Lauren through the audition process. Um, you know, they both, it's funny, they both came in and in the moment, you know, they, uh, we'd told each actress, uh, some of them were being considered for both roles, but we'd told them, you know, uh, maybe read first the role that you identify most strongly with. And they came in as, uh, you know, their characters they ended up playing. Uh, and they were so fun in the room. I found myself just wanting to spend more time with them, which I think is a, a good indication for any little movie where you're going to be thrown into the Missouri heat together. Um, and I was really struck with Emma, who plays Millie, uh, which of course is not confusing in the slightest. No, um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Cause then, <laughs> then, then hope is playing Emma. So yes. Hope is playing Emma and uh, Emma is playing Millie. And, uh, you know, I, (laughs) I was so attached to the names. I didn't, I thought about changing it at one point, but we were too far down the road. They were already those characters, you know? Um, But yeah, when, well, when Emma came into the room, you know, she really, that, that was such a hard role to give someone because there's, this real openness that she has to have, but she also has to be able to put walls up and then take them down again and to be able to turn her emotions, you know, on a dime from being vulnerable and tearful to uh, laughing, you know, just at the drop of a hat. And that's a, a real challenge to not only evoke that empathy from the audience, which was so essential for this character that was making a very sort of 
rash decision uh, to be able to have people identify with her and want to follow her on this journey, but then to also have the comedic timing that she possesses on top of all that dramatic acting. Uh, I mean, she's just a true star. And then for Hope as well, you know, she has the most bubbly personality and it was so fun to see her in a role where she was so self-possessed and confident. And I think it's really rare uh, to see characters like that, that are just so unapologetic, um, you know, comfortable with being who they are. And I, I think she had just really owned it. Um, and, you know, it was really fun to see them sort of develop their characters, but they really brought it day one. Day one was Dolly's Diner, which is a huge back and forth dialogue scene for them. And they have to really be in tune with each other. And that was you know, hour one, day one of filming, they had it. Can you speak a little bit to the uh, the, the road movie sort of aspect of the film where, you know, I, at least when I'm watching this, I'm, I'm seeing the, this premise of a, of a runaway bride uh, and her sister. Uh, what kind of, I think, will throw audiences for a curve, it certainly threw me for a curve, was that she chooses to station herself with someone, as you said, who can call her sister out on her shit. These are people who, yeah. who know each other uh, extremely well. And so she, it's a weird sort of premise that flips it where it's someone who is sort of running away from something, but she's running towards people who yeah. know her very well. And I, I felt like that added a lot to the, the comedic sensibilities of the film. Was that something that, uh, was that an idea that has just been in your head as far as flipping the script on that sort of road trip type movie? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I really wanted to authentically explore the sister relationship because I, I feel like you see sort of stereotypes a lot with that type of thing. But there is this sort of there's no running away when you have a sister. At the end of the day, they're always still going to be your sister. You can have the biggest fight in the world and you're still going to have to see them at Thanksgiving, you know. Um, and I just thought, there was, yeah, a inherent com comedy to that sort of throwing together opposites who have to be together, who also can push each other's buttons in all the right ways, have been, you know, saying the same things and having the same arguments since they were 11 years old. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of truth in that. And I think that's what really attracted me to it. And how much of that is based on personal experience? Do you have a sister that you have this kind of bond with? Because some of the these sort of back and forth that they yeah. have, uh, yeah, is is that based in your personal reality? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have three younger siblings. Two of them are sisters, uh, and I have a brother. And they, you know, we're all really close. Um, you know, and I uh, left. You know, I've been in Los Angeles about ten years, so. Um, it's funny sort of trying to maintain that tight knit family while you're, uh, you know, away and working, uh, it can be hard, but we, you know, we always sort of pick right back up, uh, where we left off when we see each other. And I think a lot of that sort of push and pull does come from those relationships sort of in a, an amalgam of ways. Uh, but it's also, uh, you know, uh, some friendships that I've had over the years that are that sort of, uh, like, you know, you, one minute you're laughing, the next minute it's serious. You don't know if you're really fighting or if you're fake fighting or, okay, I guess things are fine now. <laughs> and I think uh, that was what I was trying to bottle a little bit uh, were, were these tumultuous uh, but also meaningful uh, bonds. Did you and your sisters have a band? Sorry. <laughs> Chris wants to get know, to the my band. Family, my family's all really musical. My dad is in a band and has been my, my since he, the seventies. Um, and I was in a band with two of my best friends growing up that my little sister always wanted to be in. Uh, but she's five years younger than me. So we were, she was always not cool enough, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so that was sort of my nod to her, you know, sort of saying, you know, what if, you know, we definitely could have, it could have been great. Have you experienced <laughs> any, uh, push and pull creatively, uh, in, in filmmaking? Cause, uh, you know, a film set can be, can feel like a family, uh, in a way. Has there been anything, uh, that has made you sort of rethink, like in particular this project, uh, maybe a, a particular arc or a certain scene uh, based on the interactions you've had on set, either with the actors or with other people that are helping you with this project? Sure. Well, I, I'm a firm believer in the best idea wins, you know, and it doesn't matter where that idea comes from. There's a couple jokes 
that have made it into the final cut of the film that I think are excellent that I didn't come up with, you know, that I really tried to create an environment where it felt like anyone could uh, sort of pitch an idea. Uh, so there's a great joke that one of our camera operators threw out there. There's another one that our assistant director uh, throughout that I, they just work so great. You know, why, why not accept, you know, things that are going to elevate your material. Um, and then I think the other sort of big challenge uh, in terms of being pushed creatively was that I was wearing so many hats on this project that the writer part of me was always arguing with the director part of me, which was always arguing with the producer <laughs> part of me. So it was sort of an internal struggle to, okay, I want to get that last take, but I know it's going to cause us to go overtime. Okay, but maybe we can negotiate on this, you know. So, uh, <laughs> which hat won more often than not? You know, the lovely thing about producing your own work is that usually the director hat won, which I think is probably the way it <laughs> it's should very be. Good. Very good move there. <laughs> And it was speaking of the producing, I saw that Shelley Long was a producer on the yes. film. How did she come on board? Yeah, we reached out to her uh, through our amazing casting director, Jessica Sherman, uh, with the script. And she came on board because of the story. She really uh, connected with that Mildred character who's sort of this, you know, Henri grandma. Um, and it's hard to think of Shelley Long as a grandma. You know, she... yeah still such a firecracker um and by no means uh you know is just a you know a, a grandmother um she is just remarkable and her i mean speaking of comedic timing i mean it doesn't get any better than that um and she really you know connected with the story and i'm so grateful that she believed in me and wanted to produce as well you know, that's another sort of great thing about getting to produce material that you create is you get to put all of your favorite things in it. So for years, I've been, you know, kicking around ideas for T-shirts or band names or, uh, you know, just jokes in general and characters. And you get to see them all come to life. It's a joy. Was Kansas City an important part of that as well? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's my hometown. That's where I grew up. That's, uh, I mean, where I first started making films. And I really wanted to sort of go back to the community that had so inspired me. Um, and oh my gosh, did they welcome us with open arms. I mean, the amazing thing about filming in Kansas City is everywhere you turn, there are people, you know, with a plate of cookies welcoming you into their <laughs> home to, you know, have you film there. It's amazing. Uh, just the generosity of that community, the support we had from the film commissioner. They have sort of an up and coming film credit which is great um and i mean when we premiered uh in kansas city we played at the kansas city film festival the mayor came it has a very sort of portlandia sort of vibe to it a there. little bit yeah well you know it's funny everybody really does know each other which is funny because usually you'll meet somebody from new york you'll be like oh i have a friend from new york oh yeah and you'll say their name and be like nope never heard of him <laughs> nine times out of ten i know who you're talking about <laughs> and um um, on the casting also with the comedy the supporting characters the back-to-back -back with steve agee and sean gunn oh, was gosh, that something that was intentional because it was just kind of like a one-two punch it was very effective yes oh i'm so glad that it works yes um i mean they are just fabulous steve's scene was the hardest to cut in the whole film because there was just so, so much good. funny stuff he's so good um, and I was like, I got to cut it down for time. I got to cut it down for time. And it was just a riot. I mean, we were crying on set. We were laughing so hard. And Sean brought so much to that little, you know, minor character that could have just been a throwaway scene. But it is important to sort of build this tension up to their fight. And he did it beautifully. There's this one line he says that you can interpret it. He says something like, are you OK? Which is like so casual. You can mm -hmm. interpret it so seriously. I've heard so many laughs at that moment that I didn't anticipate because it seems like he's asking, like, are you sure you're going to be all right in that room? You know, <laughs> he's like really concerned. Cracks me up. They're fabulous. <laughs> I, I was interested in the, the editing process as far as was there more material uh, with the wedding day itself uh, with those characters maybe reacting to our, our bride leaving or was it always sort of intended to quickly get the two sisters on the road? That's a great question. You know, that was the biggest um, sort of alteration in terms of what ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, and I give 
you know, a lot of credit to our editor, Nate Orloff, who it's his first feature and you would never know he's such a genius. Um, and he, uh, really had to sell me on cutting. We had a big scene that, you know, if you weren't on board with this relationship, if you weren't on board with Millie, like this would sell you. Uh, and we ended up cutting that scene out of the film. It was at the church. Uh, and I am so glad because I do think you start watching and you just want to see these two on the road and you want to know what's going to happen. Um, you know, you don't need any more convincing. So that was the sort of biggest alteration. It's you know, a few minutes that are gone from the beginning. Uh, but I think it's to the benefit of the story. And during that opening sequence, it's where you're playing out the credits yeah. and you actually took time and consideration for each one of the credits and how they roll through. And it's something that I always take notice of because so many films just don't seem to pay attention to that. Um, and clearly that was something that you were thinking about. Were there other films that were inspiring you for how you approached your credit sequence in the film? You know, I'd written it in, um, well, because we're such a small film, I really wanted to find a way to sort of thank everyone within the project itself to like give them a little moment at the beginning before anything started. Uh, so that was kind of where the idea came from. But then I had to come up with how to execute it. And I watched so many opening credit sequences. I wanted it to feel kind of like a big 90s romantic comedy in that way. Like, yeah. Um, and so I, wa I watched a lot of, uh, yeah, Nancy Myers and uh, tried to emulate it a little bit. I hope it comes across. Is well, the that's with the um, the block letters with the cursive next to it. It definitely has that feeling. Oh, <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's interesting. Um, we wanted to try and set up this contrast too between the, the sisters. Yeah. Well, the sisters, as well as sort of her life with Charlie and her mm -hmm. life without him, and to you know try and have that emulated in the font was a lot of fun i think one of the the biggest scenes for me is the uh, with charlie is uh the, the phone sequence uh before he, yeah before he knows you know that the things are about to change uh <laughs> dramatically uh, yeah there's a little dramatic irony there yeah well it's like there's you pl you play it really well there's there's a balance there because on the one hand you know you can have some judgment to this woman for mm -hmm. leaving a guy who is clearly like so enthused and so nervous about his big wedding day mm -hmm. but on the other hand there's you know the longer the conversation goes on I start to judge him because I'm like, you know, you're not, you're just talking, you're just kind of spewing mm -hmm. all of your inner turmoil. And it takes him a very long time to even ask like, uh, so what's going on with you? Like, why, you know, basically why are you calling me? Like, are you, are you feeling mm -hmm. the same thing? And I, I really love the way that that scene plays out because I start on one side and then I'm kind of on the other by the end of that conversation. I'm like, and I'm kind of, I'm ready for her to, to take off. I'm ready for her to like, okay, maybe this is not going to, maybe there's, maybe there's more. <laughs> you call it here. quits pretty, pretty easy there, Mike. <laughs> well, I, I, maybe, you know, as, as a newly married man, I should probably, you know, recount yeah, uh, that it, statement. It, it uh, you more. <laughs> yeah. You have to be very polite with me on the phone apparently because otherwise I'm, I'll just book it. But I, I felt like that was a very, it was a very pointed thing like the way you you handled that and it, I, I have to imagine it was very delicate as far as making sure that both characters do not come across as totally at fault here uh but also yeah. not totally engaged with each other like they should be on their wedding day yes exactly well and it was a challenge when we were filming because it is supposed to be this sort of microcosm it's the only time you really see them interact um you know sort of in their pre-runaway mode um and I really wanted to create this, you know, little glimpse in time as to what their relationship was like, uh, just to give you a, a taste of sort of what Millie's going through. And it was a challenge because on the church day, uh, when we were filming, um, Emma was there and able to read offline with Sterling. Uh, but then when we were out uh, on the side of the road, Sterling wasn't able to be there because of logistical reasons. And so it was our assistant director reading with Emma. Uh, and that, you know, could have been so difficult, but her performance there is staggering. Um, and, you know, it really is a, a testament to her. Maybe our assistant director should go into acting. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate the shout out there too. They're like, yeah, maybe I should. Been thinking it the whole time. <laughs> no, I think it really is. I mean, Emma is, is just spectacular and her, her dedication and her, I mean, she 
you know, on the side of the road in a hundred degree heat in Missouri is able to draw you in to her sort of inner monologue in such a beautiful way. I, I'm stunned every time I watch that scene. Now, I just out of curiosity, do you see yourself in either one of these characters? Um, because I, I, this might sound like an odd comparison, but when I was watching this in the kind of writer director role, I was thinking that maybe you had a little bit more of the Emma character in you simply because you gave her the dialogue. A lot of the time you gave her the punchlines. Right. Well, you know, that's the hard thing about writing a comedic duo is you do sort of have to have straight man, silly man. And, um, you know, even though Millie is this lead character, I did feel bad a lot of times she was the butt of the joke. You know, she didn't get to give the punchline, uh, which is why, you know, she does sort of she at least gets a speech at the end. I was like, she needs this vindication, <laughs> you know, um, you know, in terms of identifying with a character, I, I feel like they're both, you know, they both have elements of, of me in different points in my life or depending on what hat I'm wearing that day. Um, but I think overall, the character that I identify most with is definitely Grandma Mildred. <laughs> <laughs> Would not have guessed that. Fantastic. <laughs> Chris, you're just thinking selfishly. You're, you're thinking like the, the Tarantino model where he wrote Mr. Pink because he wanted to play that part. That's I think you're in that headspace. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was simply it was uh, Kevin Smith writing Clerks and he gave the all the good lines to Randall because that's, you know, what he thought he was going to end up performing. Right. Oh, my gosh. I love Clerks. Kevin Smith's great. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> uh, and just out of what's the kind of the diff the main difference that you see um, as far as the execution from moving and being around sort of big budget films that you were around and then in the execution of this really small budget uh, world, how, what, what did you learn from those huge scale movies that you brought to this? Well, the visual effects, you know, that definitely translated. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I think, that, that's uh, the thing. So, Steve Agee was never there. <laughs> exactly. He's a hologram. Um, we're going to set the whole second, the sequel's underwater. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, we actually did have quite a few visual effects, which is surprising, but there's just always things that you want to paint out or, or change. And so we did have an amazing team there. Uh, my friend Caitlin Yang is an incredible visual effects artist um, that we met at college. So she, you know, did some beautiful work with her team. And we had a couple other friends who did a little bit of compositing or painting or uh, what have you. Um, but I think the, the biggest shift from sort of these big budgets, I mean, you always have the same problems. You have time problems, you have money problems, and you have daylight, you know, and no one can fight uh, Mother Nature. And we got so lucky. Um, I mean, there's an incredible amount of planning that goes into any film. Uh, but for us, you know, we did we couldn't really afford cover sets. Uh, you know, a lot of times our schedule was we had this location for one day, and if we, you know, if it rains, we're screwed. We don't have a good, we don't have a good backup plan. Um, and, you know, Missouri is not known for its uh, 300 days a year sunny weather. It's, you know, Mark Twain said about Missouri, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute. It's that uh, tumultuous. So, you know, not only was it the middle of the summer, you have summer rainstorms. It was also at the tail end of hurt of a tornado season. Um, so you, you know, sort of the weather that you see in the film is also definitely based on real life. Um, and we got so lucky, literally the hour we wrapped, um, our final shooting day, we were doing this drive part of the driving sequence, uh, where we were doing the road trip montage. So we were out in Sumner, Missouri, and that's about, I think five or six hours from where we had to drive back to. And on the drive back, it rained, it hailed, there was a tornado warning. <laughs> Literally after we yelled rap. <laughs> we could not have gotten any luckier on this movie. Um, was There was actually something that I, I, I presumed it was an accident, but I have no idea. Um, where the sisters are having a fight in the street and it's punctuated yeah. by this train going by in the background. Was that yeah. intended? That is a hundred percent intended and highly constructed. I'm okay. glad you feel like it's a happy accident. Um, we had one shot with the train in it 
and the, the rest is all sound design and uh, trick of the eye. Oh, well yeah. done. You, you, you got me. Thank you. Chris is easily fooled. Though, <laughs> I'll so. tell our yeah, yeah, he, he makes a good point. I mean, it doesn't take much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time out of your night to do this. I really do appreciate it. Um, when and how will people be able to see this film? Because I honestly, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. It's a fantastic watch. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm so thrilled that we're coming out in theaters September 29th. We're going to be at AMC Theaters in 10 cities. And here, let me see if I can name them. Los Angeles, Kansas City, St. Louis, Omaha, Oklahoma City, Wichita, Springfield, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and New York City. And uh, then it'll be on iTunes later this fall, as well as Google Play and everywhere online. So keep an eye out. I hope you do a big train action movie next just for Chris. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I know. I would love to do that. I, I, that'd be so much fun. I I feel like there's not enough, you know, comedy action out there. We need more. <laughs> Steve Agee is the, uh, is the lead right? action yeah, hero. That's a great idea. Or not Colgate. Uh, that's New York. What's the school? Carnegie Mellon. Sorry. I don't know. You could have fooled me. I don't know. I don't know anything about Pittsburgh. The Dark Knight <laughs> film there, right? I think The Dark Knight Rises <laughs> was there for a bit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but, should we get into our picks? Should we? How? I don't even know how we're going to transition because I, I never know how much bullshit or what uh, how I'm going to like fade us back in to be on track. <laughs> I never know where you're starting, so <laughs> I don't know either. Like I, I guess when I just randomly am like, all right, so what'd you pick, Chris? Two sisters on the road, or I, you know what? That's I'm going to take that back. That's not bad. Uh, I'm just going to admit to you that uh, I kind of struggled with this one as well. Uh, I I don't think I even thought about any 90s rom-coms that she mentioned, which is shocking because mm-hmm. this is a 90s movie podcast, apparently. This, those are <laughs> our, our picks predominantly. Oh, I, I went right down the middle of the 90s on my pick. Well, I uh, – yeah, I went 2011. So I oh. – uh, but it really came down to two choices from the same filmmaker. And I don't know if you'll be able to guess on the years, but – uh, it was between a film, uh, the first one I thought of from 2004, which I uh, dismissed to go with uh, his 2011 film. Do you got any ideas just based on, are you that big of a nerd yet? Uh, I'm not quite that big of a nerd yet, but let me see. Uh, 2000, Sam Mendes? Uh, no, I did not go that melodramatic. I, I thought maybe the idea of not being heard was what I was thinking. Okay. I, I, I mean, I, probably critically uh, a little bit more acclaim. But uh, maybe in the same age range, uh, like an older white dude, I'm guessing here. Uh, I went with uh, Alexander Payne's. Initially, I went uh, with Sideways, thinking yeah, of the, sure. uh, you know, uh, one uh, close friend in this case, not a not a sibling, but almost like brothers. Paul Giamatti uh, taking care of Thomas Hayden Church as he's getting ready to get married, and then there's a question on if he's actually going to go through with it because he's 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 the wild card in that film. Uh, I end up going with the descendants though, uh, mainly because I did gravitate towards that sense of place. Morgan mentioned her, her hometown because I felt like that, okay, that that's about like an actual location. That's about like mm-hmm. a sense of history with the characters and there's still a road movie aspect, uh, except with George Clooney and his daughter, uh, Shailene Woodley trying to track down, uh, the man that had an affair <laughs> with his wife while she lays in a coma. Uh, so there's a little bit of an of an ending of a relationship there, but it's far more askew than uh, than leaving someone at the altar. And I just have to say, I'm interested in yours uh, because there was only one uh, Runaway Bride movie I could think of. Well, I, I didn't go with a Runaway Bride movie. Um, so you didn't go with I Runaway Bride then. Did not go with Runaway. Which Bride. I believe it was 1999. So I was worried when you said when you said you were going back to the 90s. Oh no no! Right in the middle. I'm I'm in 1994. And I even tried to bait it during our interview. It went with clerks. You still didn't have to choke me. Oh, please. I'm surprised I didn't kill you. Why do you say that? Why do I say that? Randall, forget it. Oh, really? What did I do that was so wrong? What don't you do? You know, sometimes I think the only reason you come to work is to make my life miserable. How do you figure? What time did you get to work today? Like 10 or 10 after. You were over a half an hour late. And then all you do is come in here. Yeah, to talk to you. 
Which means the video stores are ostensibly closed. Oh, it's not like you're miles away. Unless you're out renting video at other video stores. Hermaphrodites. I rented it so we could watch it together. You get me slapped with the fine. You argue with the customers and I have to patch everything up. You get us thrown out of a funeral by violating a corpse. And then to top it all off, you ruin my relationship. I mean, what's your encore? Do you, like, anally rape my mother while pouring sugar in my gas tank? You know what the real tragedy about all this is? I'm not even supposed to be here today! Oh, fuck you! Fuck you, pal! Jesus, there you go, trying to pass the buck. I'm the source of all your misery. Who closed the store to play hockey? Who closed the store to go to a wake? Who tried to win back his ex-girlfriend without even discussing how he felt with his present one? You want to blame somebody? Blame yourself. I'm not even supposed to be here today. You sound like an asshole! Jesus, nobody twisted your arm to be here. You're here of your own volition. You like to think the weight of the world rests on your shoulder, like this place would fall apart if Dante wasn't here. Jesus, you overcompensate for having what's basically a monkey's job. You push fucking buttons. Anybody could waltz in here and do our jobs. You, you're so obsessed with making it seem so much more epic, so much more important than it really is. Christ, you work in a convenience store, Dante. And badly, I might add. I work in a shitty video store, badly as well. You know, that guy Jay's got it right, man. He has no delusions about what he does. Us, we like to make ourselves seem so much more important than the people that come in here to buy a paper or, God forbid, cigarettes. We look down on them as if we're so advanced. Well, if we're so fucking advanced, what are we doing working here? Um, oh, <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, what, Muriel's wedding? That was 94. <laughs> <laughs> okay, R- reason being, um, I had initially, when I was looking at this, I kind of thought about doing ginger snaps. Uh, from 2000 and then i realized well that is from 2000 so that's breaking my rule of not being a film from the 90s so I decided to look a little bit deeper go back to the well on it and wait a minute really you're the only person that, that would say that you decided to look a little bit deeper and you chose clerks over ginger snaps <laughs> a canadian horror film you well, went with I clerks I, I thought about the uh <laughs> just the depth of time not of actual substance <laughs> um so my thought being, though, that with Dante and Randall, there's a similar dynamic between the two of them where you have the straight man and you have the goofball. But there's a genuine honesty between the two of them where they know each other well enough that they can call each other on their shit. Um, when Dante is you know, kind of bitching about not being heard and all these things, he does have Randall that will entertain him for a little while. But when it really push comes to shove, he is the one guy that will actually stand up and say, you're being an asshole. You're being an idiot. And I felt a similar dynamic between the sisters and different flowers. So I was really basing it on the relationship as opposed to sort of the dynamic of the storytelling, even though it's not that far off, I guess, with it being the end of a relationship film. Sure. I mean, there's. (laughs) <laughs> I, I guess in your version, if I I probably should have gone with sideways because you go with Dante as your Thomas Hayden Church. You go with him, and in your world, that's the soap star who is you know questioning if he should get back together with someone else. You know, he's somewhat dismissive of the uh, yeah. the homestead, if you will. You know, I mean, Clerk, she's far more present than in Sideways. Uh, I, I, th- I felt like there was a little bit of that. There's definitely more. Um, uh, more of a family dynamic with me going with the descendants and I I just rewatched it recently and uh, it's rare because I watched it for pure pleasure. It wasn't because I had this particularly in mind for this. You would not allow that to stand. So (laughs) yeah, normally, uh, normally I I think that's a sin since I'm trying to produce a podcast every day on movies. Um, (laughs) I had forgotten how much, um, to, to bring up you know my version of Randall for my pick that Shailene Woodley sort of plays that part as the teenage daughter to her grown ass man father George Clooney she's pushing around a movie star I don't want to talk about mom with anyone look whatever you two fought about over Christmas you have to drop it grow up you love your mother your mother loves you I can't drop it you have to you really don't have a clue do you Tim, mom was cheating on you. That is what we fought about. When I was home at Christmas, I caught her with a guy. It made me sick to see her near you. I went back to school thinking that that was it, that I was just 
done with her. I was going to call and tell you everything. And, and then the accident happened, and... I was waiting until she woke up, I guess. You didn't even suspect, right? Right? You're disgusted me too. You're always so busy. Caught her with a guy. What does that mean? I was on my way to swim in the Black Point pool with Brandy, and suddenly I see Mom and some douchebag walking into a house. His house, I guess. Just some guy. It could be anybody. And he had his hand on her ass. It was gross. Which I think probably, you know, that helped her ascend in that way because she's got a, a probably the most showy part in the film. And I I was always kind of, I don't know if it, curious would be the word, but I, I, I think I was happy that George Clooney, uh, other than being, you know, ridiculously handsome, is playing a reactionary character here who is kind of at a loss at what to do. And for the most part, it's other people telling him or berating him about what he's not been doing. Uh, and what he should or should not do, what steps he should take further. It's not a very movie star role. He's the, you know, he's the version that Dante would like to see play Dante <laughs> in his life, doing a life story of him. So when they eventually do the, um, whatever the James Franco thing is that he's doing right now on the room, I can't, the disaster artist, when they do that for clerks, it'll be a George Clooney type playing Dante. I mean, I would hope. Uh, I don't know how engaged Clooney would be at that point. Uh, if that, you know, if that ever gets off the ground, I don't know how old he'll be. If he'll be in his seventies, that would only make it funnier. Um, <laughs> I, I think one thing that's it's strange though is how you, you've definitely gone more comedy uh, with yours. Definitely more crude uh, comedy, which is not in different flowers. Uh, I believe I believe it's a PG thirteen film. Correct. I think it's. Yeah, no, it's definitely not an R. If it's an R, I don't see why. Yeah, that would only that would be like the MPAA being uh, gender biased again, where they're like, "Oh, two women having fun." Well, that's this is dangerous material. <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> There's a woman that's annoyed that the guy is wanting to talk during sex. So no, that, that's that's unacceptable. Yeah, and if he had if he had talked uh, with uh, very Randall uh, terminology, it probably would have been fine. But the fact that she tells him no, that's up. Oh, no, that's that's a hard R right there. Uh, that that I, there, I did feel a little bit bad because there was there were a couple others. Like I thought of uh, to avoid the '90s because I felt like that was you know that was going to be your territory that I'm now ceding to you. Uh, I was thinking <laughs> of uh, Penny Marshall's A League of Their Own as far as the sisters or yeah, rivalry. Sure. And there's that road movie aspect. Now, I mean, that's going a bit far astray because it's, it's a sports film. But it is about two characters, two sisters who want different things and have lived their, their lives to sort of get to two different points. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But, of course, uh, this being a podcast by uh, two straight white dudes, uh, I'm going to go with Clooney. You know, I've got to get rid of the women here. But I, I still – you know, I just I still think Shailene Woodley is a really interesting character in that regard, and I, I like their their sort of strange father daughter bond they have that she can she can be brutally honest with him. Well, I just went with the uh, People's Clooney, Brian O'Halloran. <laughs> That's gonna be the uh, the uh, subtitle of this episode is the People's Clooney <laughs> that people have been waiting for. Uh, one question I have though is I I do remember sure. the the Descendants uh, getting a little bit of pushback because it's um. A bit more sentimental than maybe people want from Alexander Payne, especially if you're a fan of like Election, which is oh, extremely, it, extremely just better. getting a uh, Criterion release this December. So apparently yeah. with a uh, shout out to Andrew of AB Film Review and The Last New Wave with a horrifying cover of a close up of the pick flick uh, cupcakes, which Fantastic. I, just, I just find, you know, that it makes me want to buy that and then some dessert. That's that's great. Um <laughs> But the descendants, I mean, it's it is. I mean, it's about a a wife and mother in a coma. So I think it's hard to avoid uh, some of those those feelings uh, coming up here. I I still hold that it is. It holds on to that bitterness probably for longer than most people would be comfortable for a sort of mainstream Oscar season. Um, comedy like or a family dramedy in a way. I mean, the 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 character that Clooney plays. 
uh, has some very harsh words, uh, in particular yeah. that he's finding out that his wife's having an affair after she's uh, had this sort of accident that he has to then change his perception of her, uh, late into their marriage. And basically at the, not only the end of their marriage, her, their marriage, but the end of her life. I, I find that that's a really delicate balance here. And I, I saw a little bit of that in different flowers too, as far as, you know, it's not a life and death scale, but it is the, the end of a life. Yeah, the end of that well, relationship is that's one path that both those characters could have had, and she's choosing to sever that. The one of the things I actually really appreciate about Different Flowers is the way that they gave Charlie, um, the man that she left on the altar, that he's not cheating on her, he's not doing anything that's that just on the nose egregious, that he's just he's not listening to her. He's not helping her be the person that she wants to be. So they're not right for each other. And they didn't kind of, they made it simple and she allowed it to be, you know, far more real in that sense. Um, you didn't have to have, you know, kind of a bigger thing, like a, a coma, if you will, uh, to, to bring that emotion out. And that, that's kind of what I, I liked about this film quite a bit, actually, that it, they allowed for that breakup to be over something simple like that and her finding herself. And I, I thought that was actually really bold. I'm going to take a, a cheap shot at your film, which also uh, features a coma. Uh, actually, it's just a, a, a man. A corpse. A corpse that is uh, paralyzed and in death uh, is rocking a, a pretty, <laughs> pretty nice-sized boner, I guess, that we thankfully don't see on screen. Uh, that's a film that uh, I think, to Kevin Smith's credit, never really lets Dante off the hook. I mean, not only is it Randall – but I, you know, everything that happens to him does come back to the fact that he has no backbone. You know, his yep. his lament that he's not supposed to be there today <laughs> is like, well, you didn't have to come into your shitty job. You could just say no and let it be someone else's problem. And this, this, you know, his life is uh, pretty much it all crumbles down in that one day. I mean, it's it's very funny to watch. But by the end of it, I mean, all he has left is he does have his job and he has Randall. But as far as the possibilities, like different flowers of a life with you know, his girlfriend or his ex, uh, both those things are taken away from him. And I, I appreciate that about Smith. I appreciate that. He's, he brings him down to just, just Randall, a guy that he doesn't seem to particularly like. He's just there <laughs> and he's, well, he's unmoving. He he's, he's actually the character that is, I guess the most loyal in that way. And that he, no matter how much he's berated, he will stick by Dante's side. <laughs> he will keep coming back. And I, I'm glad that um, I think it was John Pearson who uh, who had him chop off that ending because he really wanted to take you know Dante to task at the end of that film. Yeah, having having him uh, be shot, um, I, I've heard him say that you know he was a big fan of Do the Right Thing, mm -hmm. and so he wanted you know he he liked that that dramatic moment, which uh, to be fair uh, is set up quite a bit better and do the right thing <laughs> than just some random person coming in and shooting him. And I'm not saying that, you know, random acts of violence don't happen, but uh, when you're watching a film like that, it's not really random because you, you're sitting there and if you've had some good times with these guys, you play hockey on the, the rooftop there and seeing people steal Gatorade and have all these sex jokes and talk about star Wars, you can't help but feel that Kevin Smith has done something to you if he punishes our main character by killing him. Like that, yeah. that's not going to be seen as random. It's going to be just seen as cruel by the filmmaker. So and good advice the, there from Pearson. And the one thing he did that sort of had, it's the opposite sort of, but it's the idea of playing with those extremes in a film uh, was in red state where it's kind of building up to this crescendo where you kind of think the voice of God could possibly be coming down upon them in the end of the film. And then it pulls the rug out from under that. And I think that it's sort of playing with the same idea of subverting the expectation of the ending. But that's a guy that has, you know, six films under his belt and actually knows what he's doing with clerks. He wasn't ready to do that yet. I would say if you have George Clooney in that, uh, the part of the, uh, the cult leader, uh, you may have actually had God come down. <laughs> <laughs> that's unfair. Of course, Clooney wouldn't do that, but Tom Cruise, certainly he certainly would. Tom, Tom Cruise would have accepted nothing less. I, I think Clooney would have been fine uh, uh, being the uh, Melissa Leo character. I think he would have been down for that. I, see, I was thinking he would have come in and done the Kevin Pollock role. I don't know. I think Kevin Pollock, uh, you'd have to pry that from his cold, dead hands. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a gag that he would want to be a part of, and no one's going to take it from him. I don't care if it's Clooney. So, so are you a fan of uh, 
the descendants, or are you off the uh, the Alexander uh, Payne? Oh no, no, no! I, I'm I've been on board the whole time. I, I'm I actually there is a scene that I always go to in that movie that I probably watched ten times in a row where um, George Clooney's running down after he kind of hears the news flip-flops. and he goes, the, the, <laughs> yeah, running in the flip flops around the windy street, and he's oddly enough speaking of tom cruise but for different reasons they're both actors that can just make you laugh when you watch them run but with clooney it's just this i don't know i I, that just killed me every time i watched it and you know to be fair everything i've read about him is he's a pretty good athlete you know pretty good pretty good basketball so that that is actually him acting as far as to be (laughs) that old man shuffle that he's doing there to be so awkward (laughs) sadly that's my actual run well, I, I just assumed he, you know, from afar, uh, took a plane to Tucson and studied you. <laughs> <laughs> I just sent in tape. <laughs> that is uh, coming to our Projecting Film YouTube channel that we've been discussing starting. <laughs> it's Chris Maynard running. Well, it's this idea where um, I'm starting an Instagram channel where I just imitate famous actors running. Do you have the space? You know, do you have the scope on Instagram? I don't know. I feel like, I feel like YouTube. The, the lack of scope actually helps me. Okay. Yeah. I guess it does make it uh, look a little bit more impressive <laughs> in that, in that little box <laughs> moving around. I, uh, that strangely does bring me to, I guess the last one I had that we did not, did not make in that uh, particular conversation with the, uh, the writer and director of different flowers, which, uh, is I, I think the, the use of space there, I know she, she talked about wanting film in her hometown is something that you, you also have in clerks as well. Uh, as yeah. far as, you know, putting people in close proximity, there is something there about, of course, it being more revealing or forcing people to be more revealing, uh, which is in the descendants. I, I think that it's, it's stranger in the descendants because you have this beautiful background and it's, I think in the filmography of Alexander Payne, uh, it maybe adheres a little bit closer to Kevin Smith as far as, you know, I, I think he has, especially if you go back to election, you know, he has kind of very simple setups. Yeah. There, there's like one, the one sequence with, uh, Chris Klein, uh, that the sort of the, as they're fantasizing about their right. futures, yeah, that's yeah. a little, that's the one that sticks out. Uh, but for the most part, you know, he, he just kind of likes some pretty simple setups here, but he never romanticizes Hawaii in that film and makes it look sexy. No, there's there's one moment where he does, and th- that's the moment where Clooney's like, "Yeah, we're going to get rid of all this. We're going to sell it mm. and develop it." So even as you're meant to enjoy it for once, you're like, "Oh, well, this has a dark tinge to it." Thanks, thanks, Buzzkill, <laughs> for ruining that moment. <laughs> but I, I I found that was one the last reason I, I wanted to select it, um, and I could have gone with Sideways for that as well. But Sideways does cheat sure. a little bit more because there's constant separation from the characters yeah i mean there's you, you have the the interludes where the the, the bachelor comes back um and paul Giamatti's usually passed out drunk and you know, has this <laughs> pornography stash like he's fallen asleep to reading which is, is about as sad as it gets <laughs> he doesn't even make it to the jerking off part <laughs> but that's that's something like with the the descendants that i, I really like because you i mean you keep adding these side characters like you had one of shailene woodley's friends uh sid and you have uh, Robert Forster as the father. Like it, it, it starts to feel very claustrophobic, which I think is really impressive considering that it is hopping around the islands of Hawaii. So I've, I've always really liked that about the film. And uh, I think it's in different flowers too. There's, it's, there's some beautiful scenery there, but there is a strange claustrophobic feeling the way the sisters, you know, the way they sleep together, the way they're in the car <laughs> together. Like even that gas station sequence, it's, it feels yeah. like neither one of them can catch like catch a break or a breather. Like they just have to be like in each other's business. And I think it, it does add something to the characters too, because you know, at least the, the runaway bride here, there, there has to be a feeling of desperation for some connection for something to hold on to because she is, she just cast, you know, the next few decades, presumably of her life, what she'd had planned. So I, I think all three films, pretty good use of space. Yours is by far the ugliest though. I have to, I mean, obviously <laughs> I don't think you were uh, putting clerks in here to win the beauty contest as far as how it was shot. Sadly, I was. <laughs> you thought I would come up with something uglier? Like, <laughs> come up. With... <laughs> I thought you were going to bring Nadja to the table. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I'd have to, you know, that's that's for another podcast. Unfortunately, like, unless we have a filmmaker that's saying, like, I attempted to make the ugliest looking film, I don't know if we're going to get that shot again to challenge each other to be like, oh yeah, <laughs> let's go to our archives and see about that. <laughs> My God, even Human Centipede, especially, you know, 
I mean, that, that has some pretty classy, uh, classy setups there. There's some good staging involved. <laughs> yeah. It's a, the, that's pretty much, uh, the projecting film review breakdown of the whole trilogy of the human centipede classy setups. I mean, it, for, for a long stretch there, it gave us our rating system. So <laughs> since we had a filmmaker on this show, we probably should not drag that one out. So we'll just, we'll just, we'll just hold off on that to, to go to the, the head dog in the middle and all how we judge films, but it's pretty good. You know, it's coming to letterbox soon. I think <laughs> it's uh, I know once we've run into that point at this show, it's time to change the format of what we're doing. We'll just give it a different name, but it's going to be the same bullshit. It will be, uh, you know, I, I see in our future being a 90 year old men, uh, finally doing our nineties podcast because <laughs> it's, you know, it's got an easy catch phrase right there to 90 year olds talking about nineties movies. And, uh, that's when we will finally have success and that's when we'll deserve it. If we can make it that long. Well, it, it's going to go right back to your Alexander Payne moment that we find success on our deathbeds. I mean, I, I will still podcast at your bedside when you're in a coma, and I will say horrible things to you. <laughs> that was meant oh, to say. Considering the way you edit me out of the show, I mean, <laughs> it's not going to make much of a difference. I'm so tempted to uh, start playing the music mid-sentence on you right there in my final <laughs> cut. <laughs> Just before you even finish your thought. <laughs> Please do. I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> I approve this edit. Thank you for listening to another episode of Projecting Film. Thank you to our guest, Morgan Dameron, for giving us the time and great interview about her film, Different Flowers. So check that out. It's out now. And hopefully you're checking out our show. If this was your first episode, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Projecting Film. You're also at followingfilms.com where you can find this among other podcasts that I do and some other lesser folk. Uh, but uh, you can do the old-fashioned thing. We are now on iTunes, so subscribe there, leave us a rating or review, and come back next time. We're looking at a film I've been looking forward to for some time, Abundant Acreage Available, Angus McLaughlin's follow-up to Goodbye to All That, which was one of my favorite films from 2014. So we'll see if... Uh, this holds true with his new film in 2017. Hopefully you'll join us again. Thanks. These are the same two movies? You weren't paying any attention. No, I wasn't. I don't think your manager would appreciate it. I don't appreciate it. your ruse, ma'am. I beg your pardon? Your ruse. Your cunning attempt to trick me. I was only pointing out that you weren't paying any attention to what I was saying. I hope it feels good. You hope what feels good? I hope it feels so good to be right. There's nothing more exhilarating than pointing out the shortcomings of others, is there? Well, this is the last time I rent here. You'll be missed. Screw you! Hey, you're not allowed to rent here anymore. Yeah!